This is The Kicker, CJR's podcast about all things media. I'm Pete Vernon. Today we have a special episode because we're bringing back an old friend. Dave Uberti, The Kicker's original host and my former colleague, who's now fulfilled his dream of becoming a Brooklyn-based writer, wrote a piece for us about the controversy surrounding the New York Times' hiring of Sarah Zhang to its editorial board. We'll talk about how that controversy exposed a fault line in the media between journalists who have grown up on the internet and the news organizations who haven't. But first, we return to a man whose supplements Dave and I once seriously considered testing out. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay! Alex Jones, a supplement peddling grifter who traffics in racism and conspiracy theories, saw most of his content erased from Apple, Facebook, YouTube, and Spotify this week. That followed weeks of questions from reporters and pressure from the public. Twitter, however, paddled against the tide, leaving Jones's accounts untouched. So Dave, first, awesome to have you back here. Yeah, I mean, it's great to come out of the shadows of my co-workspace in Brooklyn for this. <laughs> Well, it's nice to have you back in the sterile confines of the Upper West Side. Right, exactly. So what did you think of this response from tech companies? It sort of seems like they're moving the goalposts in some sense. I mean, as I recall, the vast majority of them sort of cited Alex Jones as as, uh, producing hate speech. Yeah, not misinformation. On their platforms. And it seems to me as someone who has followed Alex Jones's illustrious career over the last several years that they could have done the exact same action at any given time over that period. Yeah, so we were... why now? Why now? And it would seem to be that there's just been increased reporting on how information um, from Alex Jones and similar outlets spreads over these platforms and then you know, resulting public pressure on them because of it. So in, in some senses, it's good that these large platforms, some of the largest companies in the world are responding to public pressure, are doing things that the public is ask, asking them to do. On the other hand, I would like to see them be a little bit more transparent about why they're making these decisions or the processes by which they're making these decisions. Yeah, it seems like we were sitting here a year ago having similar conversations about Alex Jones and the sort of just garbage he was putting out there, both in terms of the false information, but also the attacks on certain groups. And I do wonder how much of the tech company's responses, those that did decide to remove his content, was just due to what seemed like a wave of questions and pressure from journalists. I think a lot of it started in July when Oliver Darcy just asked straight up, why is InfoWars still on your platform? Right. And and it gets to the broader question that a lot of them are dealing with, which is what is our platform's role in the distribution of false or misleading information? And what exactly should we do about that? And, you know, the response that we've seen from tech companies over the last couple of days has been a very subjective one. Um, They've essentially made an editorial decision. And one would think that they are also coming to the realization that ethics don't scale. Uh, They like to have their platforms policed or governed by algorithms, these sort of monolithic things that we don't really fully understand as as users or members of the public. When in reality, you know, it, it came down to a lot of reporting and public pressure being put on these companies and them just deciding at the end of the day, hey, we're going to interpret our rules in a way that Alex Jones does not conform to. So he has to get the boot. Right. And I would just wonder how that will apply when the next case comes up, because this isn't going to stop with Alex Jones. I don't know whether the next big pressure campaign is going to be from right wing 
Alex Jones supporters who are saying, well, you did this to our guy. What about this person on the left who's also very out there? Or if there's going to be uh, a shifting from reporters to say, all right, well, Alex Jones was doing these bad things, but so are any number of other figures why are they still on this platform? Right. And I thought the interesting outlier in this discussion was Twitter, where which is still allowing Alex Jones on its platform. And actually, Jack Dorsey, uh, who's the head of Twitter, put out a statement on the platform. He's saying, we didn't suspend Alex Jones or InfoWars yesterday. We know that's hard for many. But the reason is simple. He hasn't violated our rules. We'll enforce if he does. And we'll continue to promote a healthy conversational environment by ensuring tweets aren't artificially amplified. And Basically, what he's saying is that we want to stay, you know, governed by this supposedly neutral set of rules that we have, um, and Alex Jones hasn't violated them. Um, and I, I do think that you'll come into a situation where you have bad actors take advantage of those rules. I mean, if Alex Jones isn't violating your terms of service, you should probably reevaluate what those terms of service actually are. Yeah, get better rules. Jack also said later in that thread that you quoted from, accounts like Jones's can often sensationalize issues and spread unsubstantiated rumors. So it's critical journalists document, validate, and refute such information directly so people can form their own opinions. So He's sort of passing the buck. <laughs> oh, yeah. <you> think? <laughs> I, well, I'm sure some journalists would wish he would pass the buck. Right. Uh, Twitter's now profitable. How about Jack hires some actual journalists right. to do some work on the platform? Right. And it, it just like, you know, this game of whack-a-mole just seems impossible to keep playing. I mean, if you if you rely on journalists to rebut each individual falsehood or piece of fake news that's spreading on the platform, A, that's going to take that in theory, that would take up all of journalist time constantly. And then secondarily, you would think that that would also serve to spread misinformation in some ways. If if journalists like, you know, inherent goal is to just rebut false info, you're going to end up spreading some false info in the process. Right. And it's just not feasible. Twitter has hundreds of millions of users. Facebook has billions of users. This isn't the sort of thing that as you said earlier, ethics aren't going to scale in the way that Facebook can set their algorithm to identify nudity. It can't do that to identify, you know, what is and is is not acceptable discourse. Right. And, you know, there was an interesting piece in The New York Times the other day by David French, who's a conservative writer with the National Review. And he was basically arguing for, you know, Facebook and similar tech platforms to essentially enforce a libel law of sorts, basically try to uphold uh, or hold up users to the legal standard that we hold, you know, citizens of the United States to with regard to free speech and whether it slanders people, um, which just seems like an interesting idea for me. And I, was, I, I confess I was pretty baffled by the column. It, it just seemed interesting for a conservative writer to be making the argument that the tech platform should be enforcing something that looked a lot like regulation in big some government, sense. Big government tech platforms. Yeah. I mean, he was certainly arguing that the tech platforms themselves should enforce these things. Um, but it just seemed interesting in, in that sense to sort of employ a legal standard to, to a private company's own terms of service. I, I think that brings up an interesting thread of arguments that we've seen around this too, which is essentially treating, especially Facebook, like it's a sovereign state. Right. People arguing free speech and you need to uphold these ideals and laws that the United States has. But as others pointed out, Facebook's a privately held company, right? It is uh, not subject to the First Amendment and the way that the United States government is. And it has the right to censor, to delete, to ban whoever it wants. But those same arguments also 
reflect the size and scale and power of, again, especially places like Apple, the first trillion right. dollar company, uh, Facebook, which has 2.5 billion users, that stat right. they broke out last quarter. Um, and it's just an example of how these companies are so powerful and so big and influence the way that we consume news and information and engage with each other. I, I just don't know what we actually want from them. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, 2.5 billion people, that's probably as large of an organization of people has, that has ever existed. That's probably larger than Christianity or something. It's certainly larger yeah. than any nation state as we conceive of them. So, I mean, there was a great piece in New York, in New York Magazine a couple of weeks ago about how Facebook should have some sort of constitution, um, which you could sort of conceptualize as, you know, a, a built-out terms of service that people actually understand and, and can relate with and is made public. And right now, I mean, it, it seems that, you know, they're relying on sort of these opaque rules that only they uh, fully comprehend within the organization. Uh, so I, I don't think the average user would read the terms of service, be able to understand what exactly it means or how it's, how it's applied. Yeah, I, I think something like a constitution that is written in layman's terms that uh, is in plain English or Mandarin or whatever language uh, you're, you are speaking as you are. Or just acknowledge that you make decisions. Just acknowledge that you're not this sort of monolithic thing that just runs via code. Just acknowledge that you're, there's humans central to this platform. Humans make decisions. Humans make errors. Uh, and you're going to have sort of subjective uh, decisions made on your on your platform. So from those subjective decisions, as both journalists and consumers... It means you have to be a media company. Yeah. I, I, this is something that certainly Emily Bell, uh, our old friend, has been arguing for years. Right. Um, as journalists and as consumers of news, do we want those decisions to be focused, as in this case, on hate speech and preventing the incitement of violence uh, or, you know, spreading... Um, racist, xenophobic ideas? Or are we also concerned and are we asking Facebook to make decisions about actual news, about what is true and what is not? Because that's the other thread of the Jones story is that this is a guy who's talking about, you know, Sandy Hook and Pizzagate and just spreading ridiculous uh, false information. Um, do we want Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg and company, to be deciding what is true and what's not? I mean, it, it certainly uh, seems as if it's going in that direction. Do we want them to do it? I mean, do we have another choice? We can, we can either have a group of humans decide that or we can have a algorithm that's created by humans decide that effectively. Um, but I do think the most important thing is, is them for to sort of be transparent about what they're doing. I mean, we can speak as, as media companies. We understand this. We said for years that we're objective and neutral and whatnot. And that, that opened us up to political attacks, particularly from the right over the last half century or so. We're seeing the same thing now from Facebook and a lot of other tech companies where they say that are impartial, we're governed by algorithms, we're not deciding what's true or false, we're not deciding what's the right or wrong argument. And you're slowly seeing the conversation politically in the United States, you know, turning towards a lot of people like Donald Trump or others taking shots at Facebook, saying that they are coming down on one side of the conversation as, as opposed to the other side. So you're not going to be able to stop people from making those criticisms. And, and sometimes, uh, or I, I guess I could, I could see a theoretical situation in, in which those criticisms systems are true. But I think, you know, the most important thing is just explaining why you came to the position that you're at. Yeah, that, that idea of transparency, uh, one that many Silicon Valley companies have struggled with for a long time. 
I just think that would go a long way to um, helping people understand where Facebook is coming from and maybe the criticism and the questions let up a bit from there. Yeah, I mean, for now, I'm just going to go back to InfoWars and buy myself about a month's worth of caveman supplement and see what ask, happens. It must be tough for you not being able to get their information on Facebook and YouTube. Right. So you, you I have to go, go to the homepage. To the now? I have to go to the homepage. Inject just like 2010. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> The second topic also deals with the internet, but in this case we're talking about how a more traditional outlet understands it. Before we dive into the big picture, Dave, what actually happened after Sarah Zhang was hired by the Times? So Sarah Zhang was announced as the newest member of the editorial board of the New York Times, I believe, last Wednesday. She was coming from The Verge, which is a tech site owned by Vox Media. I think the next day, uh, a lot of her old tweets were serviced by both conservative news outlets and uh, quote-unquote right-wing provocateurs, as we might say. These are very bad tweets, um, particularly about white men. She was making jokes about canceling white people, et cetera, et cetera. It was a a pretty, you know, within isolation, these tweets looked extremely bad about Sarah Zhang making sort of blanket statements about a whole group of people. So in response to that, you know, the right-wing internet blew up. A lot of Trump supporters spoke out very harshly against the New York Times having a racial double standard for its employees. Fox News ran with the story in prime time, and the New York Times had to respond to that public criticism. Yeah, I have an excerpt from the Times' statement here uh, in which they defend Zhang and, and say that they're keeping her on staff. Uh, But here's one of the paragraphs that stood out to me. They say, quote, her journalism and the fact that she is a young Asian woman have made her a subject of frequent online harassment. For a period of time, she responded to that harassment by imitating the rhetoric of her harassers. She now sees that this approach not only served to feed the vitriol that we too often see on social media, she regrets it and the Times does not condone it. So that was one version of a defense of Zhang. But her old employer, The Verge, was much more explicit in their support. Uh, Their statement said in part, quote, the trolls engaged in this campaign are using the same tactics that exploded during Gamergate. From cries about ethics in journalism to fake news, journalists have been increasingly targeted by people acting in bad faith who do not care about the work they do, the challenges they face, or the actual context of their statements. You picked up on the divergence in those two statements in a way that I thought was really smart in helping us understand what's going on on the internet right now. Yeah, and I I think if you took those statements side by side, they give you a pretty good snapshot of one of the largest uh, divides within journalism today, which I think is primarily a generational divide. You have a lot of people who came up within digital media, within digital media companies who sort of cut their teeth there, who sort of envisioned themselves working at a place like The Verge or Vice or Gawker even. And that's coming into conflict with, you know, the situation and that arises when these people actually get hired to mainstream outlets, uh, outlets that subscribe to a different set of rules. They have a different set of institutional standards, uh, and they present themselves to a different audience, or at least they present themselves differently to an audience than those digital outlets play. This isn't the first time that a traditional media company in print or broadcast has been caught up in a sort of bizarro world for them, uh, whether it's a right-wing harassment campaign uh, or trying to deal with a pro-Trump media figure like the previously mentioned Alex Jones or somebody like Mike Cernovich. 
Right, and I think you have a couple of things playing out here. One is that the defining characteristic of the media that young people are coming into now is one is austerity. So they're coming into a world where traditional newspapers are dying, essentially. They see that the jobs are in the digital realm, quote unquote, and for the last decade or so, many of those jobs have been at places that really incentivize young people to be bold, be edgy, develop a brand, quote unquote, be voicey on Twitter, develop a following, uh, explore their own identities, etc. And a lot of those practices come into conflict with sort of the Columbia Journalism School view of the world, the New York Times view of the world of objectivity, uh, etc. So we have a situation now where, you know, the old, much of the old newspaper industry is dying, old magazine industry is dying, and also the, a lot of the digital media industry is dying. So we have the people at those outlets who are exposed and the people who are entering the job market or trying to make the jump from those digital media outlets to sort of the survivors of the old media industry. They're, they're sort of finding themselves in the crosshairs of, of a lot of people on the internet who are trying to essentially target journalism, target journalists uh, by any means necessary. And all of this is taking place against a backdrop of an incredibly politicized culture where especially the way that Trump has treated the media and made it his number one enemy, his essentially number one campaign issue. Um, reporters at outlets that are viewed as hostile to the president, uh, reality-based journalism, as the post-Margaret Sullivan would say, are finding themselves pawns in this sort of larger game. As this was all unfolding last week and over the weekend, um, I thought back to an interview that then CBS Evening News anchor Scott Pelley had done with Mike Cernovich, uh, another one of these quote-unquote right-wing provocateurs, um, shortly after Trump had become president. And essentially, Pelley just was not prepared to deal with a troll. Cernovich was ready for questions about his conspiracy theories and turned them around and I think won that battle uh, in a way that made people sit up and take notice that, hey, there's a, a new type of figure out there. And this information battle that's going on right now is something we're going to have to adapt to. Yeah. And, and I mean, as I argued in the piece for CGR is that the one of the, you know, effects of this generational divide uh, between between digital and sort of print type people within journalism is one of the defining moments for digital media in the last decade was a situation called Gamergate, where you had the kernel of a media criticism that was used to mask a broad harassment campaign against journalists who were, you know, particularly women and journalists of color who covered the gaming industry. And the tactics used within Gamergate have been employed time and time again to mask either harassment campaigns or other uh, attacks on the media within this language of an ethical debate within, within journalism. Actually, it's about ethics in journalism. So that's why you see the term bad faith bandied around so often on places like Twitter or elsewhere. When we talk about bad faith, we talk about people like Tucker Carlson, sort of the poster child for the aggrieved white man speaking on Fox News about institutional racism. Uh, you know, where was Tucker Carlson talking about institutional racism before last Thursday? Uh, where, where is the real outrage here? You know, Sarah Zhang's tweets were bad. She acknowledged as much in the statement that she made. But one of the points that she made was that taken in isolation, they're very hurtful. 
you know, if you examine sort of the broader context in which she was responding to, I think you could kind of reevaluate what exactly it is the real problem is on our hands. Is, is the problem her, you know, sending mean tweets about white men or is, it, is the problem, you know, her receiving harassment for years before that or sort of the broader situation of, of race and institutional racism within the country? Right. We can't have this conversation without talking about the fact that women and especially women of color, people of color, receive an outsized share of the harassment. Uh, and just like it's ridiculous if you go through pick your favorite reporter of color, uh, pick your favorite woman reporter and go read the mentions that they get on Twitter. And that's what we're not seeing in private messages or you know emails to their office. There is a certain segment of the population that is out to just make reporters, journalists' lives miserable. And I don't think that we, you and I sitting here as white men in this industry, really can appreciate that. No, I definitely think you're right. Um, And one of the tough things in situations like this is that the sort of stance within the digital media industry is to say, screw you, like, we're not going to listen to this criticism, which makes it difficult when there is legitimate criticism within media. So I I would argue that a lot of young people within media would say that the New York Times should just tell these people to, to screw off. But at the same time, the New York Times is a broader project. It's not, it doesn't play by the rules of 2018 the way a Gizmodo Media Group or even a Vox does. Uh, it has an institutional set of values that have existed for a century, if not longer. And it's trying to do something different than a It's trying to do something very license. different. Yeah. So, I mean, can it find a middle ground between those two things to sort of find a way through bad faith criticism to hone in on what's actually valid or is of sort of a generous motivation? Uh, It seems difficult in this political environment, particularly when you have a lot of this really, really charged rhetoric around race or social issues really being driven by segments of the Republican Party. Can an outlet maintain impartiality when so much of the political rhetoric coming from the president himself, uh, amplified by Fox News, the main Republican media organ, can someone stay impartial within that environment? Probably not. And if you prize the appearance of impartiality, you're going to have a difficult time. That was our show. And since it is a special reunion episode, Dave, I'll let you take it away. I just wanted to say one last time, thanks for kicking it with us. We'll see you next week. Great to have you back. <laughs>